0: Welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery My name is Andrew Grieve, and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode Welcome back to part 2 Chatting to Mark Davenport about pulmonary atresia Last week he gave us an introduction to the background and some of the ideas behind pulmonary atresia This week we're going to carry on with the different treatment options Welcome back Mark um, so you mentioned that, you know, if you've got a patient that's there's suspicion for billiard cheese you'll take them to theatre for a, a mini laparotomy. Um I mean, you know, there's always this gambit about patients going for an on table cholangiogram yeah. plus or minus uh, a cassai enterostomy Um you know, maybe you can just briefly break down for us what what are the different treatment options Broadly speaking, for biliary atresia and then we can talk a little bit more about, you know, the uh, Kasai operation, as it
1: were. Uh, okay. So the the first and fundamental decision you have to make is: will a bilir- uh, will a Kasai operation be a futile procedure? Okay. And that question arises in the babies that are old at the time of presentation. So we will say arbitrarily that kind of question would be considered for babies that are hundred days plus at the time of presentation, so that's three months plus. Mm. Um, and we, we, if we're confident prior to laparotomy that the cause of their, this baby's liver problems is biliary atresia, but yet they are so advanced that uh, any kind of operation would be a futile exercise, uh, we consider those for primary liver transplantation. Okay. It's a fine clinical decision because some of them still do clear their jaundice, And we've had many cases. We published a series about 18 years or so uh, detailing the um, the actual um, post-operative uh, results of babies subject to Casai at 100 days plus. And indeed in that series, something like 40% still had their native liver at that five years of age, which is not bad at all. Now, mm. a lot of those babies had come prior to Liver transplant.
0: Okay.
1: So they they may not have been in the the most healthy condition at five years, but they still have their livers. Nowadays, almost certainly that proportion has dropped because we transplant much uh, much more readily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we what we were looking for, or what we are looking for, is clinical signs that um, of cirrhosis. So if the ultrasound shows a nodular liver, okay. If the ultrasound or clinically there's obvious ascites. Uh, or signs of portal hypertension, we will back away and uh, uh, process them for liver transplantation as opposed to Casai's. Right. Uh, sometimes if you still can't quite make your mind up, do a mini-laparotomy. And you can see inside, well, you can see if the kid's cirrhotic. Yeah. Uh, you can see if, there's, if they've developed colidocal varices mm. uh, around the obliterated biliary tract, and, and, and that makes it difficult, Casai. Yeah. Uh, so you can then say, well, actually, let's let's leave it inside you and uh, let's again uh, put them through the transplant process. Now, that may be a moot point in those scenarios where you can't offer transplantation. Uh, there are clearly many areas in the world where transplantation is just not on the table.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and for those, you say, well, there is a possibility we can do something for this baby. Carry on. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, in in the sort of developed world, if you like, transplantation is, is an effective treatment for cirrhosis, no question, uh, and you may as well just get on with it.
0: Okay. So, I mean, in my experience, an on-table cholangiogram is actually not a very common entity. We always make preparation for it when you go and explore these babies, but actually the chance of us doing it is relatively rare. Yeah. When do you find that it's
1: a beneficial procedure? Uh, okay, so in all the textbooks, probably those textbooks that you should be throwing away, <laughs> you say these babies go to the theatre and have an operative cholangiogram. And then these are obviously textbooks written by physicians who have never been near an operating theatre. Don't really know what a baby with atresia looks like. Because um, so, when you get in, 80% of them will have an atrophic gallbladder. So there is no tube you can find to put a cholangiogram in.
0: Yeah,
1: they have got bilirubinuria. Just carry on. Um, some of them, about ten to fifteen percent, will have what's what I would call a seal of the gallbladder. So the from the outside, the gallbladder looks normal, and the ultrasound reinforces that. But when you stick a needle in and aspirate, you get clear mucus. Clear mucus, um, and uh, they also have bilirubinuria. Okay. Now, uh, if they've got clay mucus, clearly the bile has not got down to the gallbladder. They also have biliary atresia. You could do a cholangiogram in those. All you will show uh, is a distal common bile duct. Right. But no, there will be no connection with the more proximal elements. So again, you, you don't need to do a cholangiogram for them. Where you do need to do a cholangiogram is where you aspirate and find bile. Okay. Um, it still could be a type 1, as we've said. Um, uh, it could be I guess a biliary stenosis or inspissated bile that you've not actually appreciated Um, and it could be all the other medical conditions that lead to the sort of mimicking of biliary atresia so a cholangiogram is actually used for exclusion of biliary atresia not a positive diagnosis Okay.
0: what's the story behind the Kasai operation? how did it come about in the first place?
1: Okay, so uh, Mario Kasai was a um, Japanese paediatric surgeon. Uh, He'd had, I think, some training in in the west coast of the States. He'd he'd certainly spent a period of time there in Los Angeles. Um, And uh, he was working in a place called Sendai, uh, which is on the uh, east coast of Japan. It had a tsunami there not uh, not too long ago. Uh, Sendai is a relatively quiet university town and uh, he was uh, he was used to operating on babies that were jaundiced uh, trying as they all were to find uh, a more proximal uh, bile containing lumen in order to do a conventional hepaticojejunostomy on mm-hmm. those was, those were the correctable forms of biliary atresia but typically you would not be able to find that there's, yeah. there's only about 10% that you could describe as correctable uh, so uh, I think the first case actually uh, that, he'd, uh, that he'd done what we would regard as a Kasai operation, uh, they had bleeding. Mm. Uh, and he'd already transected this apparently solid bit of the proximal bile ducts. Um, and uh, in order to try and stop the bleeding, he just put the roux loop up. So he constructed the roux loop and asthmosed it in and, uh, and left it alone. Um, But lo and behold, the baby postoperatively started to uh, uh, change the colour of the stool uh, and the jaundice level came down. (laughs) So it was a a serendipitous, accidental type of thing, as a lot of these things are. Uh, But then he started to do it deliberately. Uh, He also started to do um, an actual uh, analysis, histological analysis of the resected parts of the biliary tract. uh, And 3D... Uh, reconstruction of the billary ductules that you can see so if you do enough serial sections um, you can then build them up into a 3d representation and his some of his early papers are these hand drawn so nowadays we do that kind of thing digitally digital capture uh, and computerized 3d reconstruction but in those days you couldn't do that Uh, and it shows he showed um, the appearance if you like uh, of um, uh, these uh, ductules uh, within the otherwise obliterated uh, fibrotic biliary remnants uh, and that the more the, the higher you went the more of them there were okay so uh, the closer to the liver you were yes. the more they were yeah so he he said well he, he said this this is the operation of choice for these ah. uncorrectable biliary trees you just uh resect- transected them and still went on with what should have been a futile operation right Um, and showed that in a high proportion, actually clinically, they did resolve their their jaundice. Now possibly because he was Japanese, uh, possibly because his English wasn't great, uh, no one really believed him in the West. Uh, (laughs) So it took a long time. So his his original publication is in Japanese, I think it's 1959, in a Japanese journal. and this was, these were in the days before, uh, before Google Scholar and PubMed. <laughs> uh, so it was sort of lost a little bit. So um, he then embarked on, on trying to present these internationally, the results. And again, lots of people racially stereotyped him, saying they're making it up. And it was only until the 1970s that a couple of Americans, John Lilly... Uh, uh, Peter Altman started to do that or go to Sendai and learn how to do it. Uh, and my predecessor, Ted Howard, in the early 1970s probably 74, 5, 6, he went across to Sendai, watched i doing this kind of operation, came back, uh, did the first Kasai's in the UK, uh, and other Europeans took it up. So in the 1970s was the change. But by that stage, as I say, Japanese experience had been at least fifteen years, so that's why their long-term results are, are there. Yeah. You know, they, they, they the oldest survivor we we uh, uh, no, we didn't find we didn't find her, but the Sendai <laughs> people found her. She's uh, something like fifty years of age now. Okay. Uh, so there's two old ladies uh, who are the first sort of Kasai, uh survivors. Uh, so they've, they've got a much more detailed, long-term history than we have in the West. So what what are your
0: current modifications, if you want to call it that? Um, so what's the operation that you do at the moment? And we always okay. talk about a Kasai, but in reality it's a modified yeah. portentorostomy. What are you doing? What are the specific sort of nuances that you do
1: that are different to what he was doing originally. Uh, okay, so he, he, he developed his operation, no question about it. He changed what he was doing as well. His successor changed the Kasai operation, so uh, a guy called Ryoji Oe um, started to be much more radical in the dissection. Okay. So the original Kasai operations are, are they're not as high as you perhaps want them to be. Uh, they're in the middle of the portal plate. It looks like an oval and you suture to the oval. In reality, the bile duct actually permeates around uh, the vessels. So on the right-hand side, um, you should be taking all the little bile duct remnants around the bifurcation uh, of the right uh, vascular pedicle. So there's an anterior vascular pedicle, a posterior vascular pedicle. There's a little triangle, uh, which is way, way over in something called Ruvier's fossa. Uh, And we try and incorporate our side dissection in that because i never did that on the left hand side uh we split uh the little isthmus typically that you find in orex's fossa yeah. to try and get as high higher up there as well so it's a very wide dissection we mobilize the um the bifurcating portal vein to get to the back which is the chordate lobe as well so the posterior thing is 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 wider the level, however, is not is 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 flush with the liver capsule. Okay. So we don't uh, uh, we don't deliberately go into liver substance. If right. you if you're getting into liver substance, you're just being too radical. It's not stable. We think it certainly doesn't improve the results. Yeah. Um, because, but I think it's a scar on the liver, so that simply fills in with fibrotic tissue. The actual plane of dissection, there is a genuine plane. It almost, when the operation is going beautifully, you can almost strip it off mm. um, the, uh, the the liver itself. Uh, so it's it's not an oval. It's into the little nooks and crannies uh, of the various uh, vascular pedicles going into the liver itself. So that's, that's a fairly wide resection uh, in comparison to Kasai's original descriptions.
0: Okay, and then the length of the rulum.
1: uh okay, that's probably pretty more much standard. We measure it at forty centimetres okay, okay. um and we've we've done that for uh, about thirty years or so uh so that that hasn't changed that much, if much. You, we believe if it's if it's shorter uh then the incidence of postoperative cholangitis goes up okay. Um, so our incidence of postoperative colitis is relatively good by comparison with with reported series, I'll say about 20%, 25%.
0: What would be the earliest that you would do a Casire porto enterostomy?
1: Uh, day one of life. So last year we published in Paediatric Surgery International, uh, first author Tyra Sackis, and what he did, or uh, well, what, what we did, was um, actually do age cohort analysis. So we split our series uh, into rigidly defined age groups. So we had a a group of uh, those that had come to Kasai at less than 30 days,
0: uh,
1: 30 to 40 days, 40 to 50 days, 50 to 60 days, 60 to 70 days. So we had all these age cohorts. Now, we were actually looking for the effect of steroids. There is an age effect in steroid use. And arbitrarily, um, our figures suggest that 70 days may be a cut off. So if they're above 70, it it doesn't really add a great deal below 70. It does. But we were trying to see if that um, had also the opposite sort of observation that the younger had the best outcome. And as it turned out, they did. So those that were treated At less than 30 days, not many of them obviously, I think it was 12 in the cohort, 100% cleared their jaundice. 100%. Those were 30 to 40, I'll say uh, 90 85%. So when you plot them on a graph, there's a falling line. Mm. And again, it seems to peter off down to about uh, 70 days. Okay. So we reason that, that that's another reason to get these uh, is, these infants operated on as speedily as possible.
0: What does your youngest? Uh,
1: the young, the youngest ones are usually very unusual because there's no reason why you get the diagnosis quickly. Uh, so they're often syndromic ones. So I think uh, our youngest ones, which may have had a caesarean, at less than two weeks of age or so. Uh, had some other issue in in which it was recognized this kid didn't have a bile duct.
0: The reason I'm asking is because there's always this query about if you have a duodenal atresia, for example, and you notice that there's no bile duct, do you do the casai there and then, knowing that the liver is a bit more friable, it's a bit more prone to capture the hematomas, or do you wait two weeks, a month, before you go back?
1: So the... Uh, we, we would, we, the advice would be, because it's not me that's probably going to be doing the duodenal atresia uh, try and do a cholangiogram just to confirm if there is a gallbladder try and do that uh, if you've got your cholangiogram because you can have bile duct abnormalities with duodenal atresia we've seen that mm. uh, and some of them can be really strange but not actually atresia. and if you can show that they've got patency of the bile ducts then you obviously don't need to do any kind of operation uh, but if you genuinely think this could be atresia as well, um, then we would simply advise to sort out the duodenal atresia uh, because they're more than competent to do that. But perhaps they haven't got the expertise in the bilirubinuria side, and that just leave it to someone else a week or two later, uh, with the with the implication that, that someone else is a, in a central system uh, with more experience.
0: Okay. So and that brings me on to your post-operative medical adjuncts that you use after a KSI. Yeah. Do you guys use prophylactic antibiotics, and if so, for how long?
1: Okay, so the antibiotics we would uh, use, and, and all people would use uh, immediate post-operative antibiotics, intravenous uh, antibiotics, for three, four days. Uh, we happen to use tazosin and gentamicin. I'm sure you can use all sorts of things. Um. The sort of uh, key controversial areas whether you continue it orally for and what length of time do you do? Do you do that? Uh, we happen to to prescribe oral antibiotics. It's an oral catalosporin for about a month and then stop. Okay. Uh, there are others that would just continue it for a year. Um, there's no real evidence to support that, to be honest. So we we, we tend to be relatively conservative for that.
0: And then what other medical adjuncts are you using post-operatively?
1: So that, again, another controversial area would be uh, the use of steroids. Now, steroids also have a long history. Kasai himself experimented with, uh, with uh, steroids. Uh, but it was probably the Americans that uh, uh, first wrote about it. They were using it in slightly different fashion. They were doing what was called blast therapy. Okay. And they were giving it not immediately after the operation, but when they'd run into problems. So if their they're, if they're children who they had done the operation, uh, they were the jaundice level was going down, pigmented stools had reappeared, but yet they started to go white again, and the had gone up again, they would give them a blast of methylprednisolone. Uh, in those days, uh, they were actually doing um, a stoma within their root loop, So you could see the bile coming out, they could collect the bile, they could measure the bilirubin on it. And there are uh, original papers showing uh, very obvious changes in these kind of um, uh, bile flow. So if you give steroids, your bile flow increases. Uh, The level of bile excreted also increased. Um, So people then recognised or or realised that, well, if it helps them in that kind of scenario, perhaps it would help all of them if you used it as an adjunct. Antiventric therapy, mm. um, and people like Miraji uh, in Japan started to test various dosage schedules. The problem uh, at that time, which is probably the nineteen nineties, is that he didn't have that many patients, and statistically, he could never come to any conclusion. So he'd do these uh, two milligrams per kilogram per day prednisone for whatever it is, two or three weeks, uh, then changing the dose, going up a little bit. Nothing much changed, to be honest. Uh, so it was always very controversial as to what you should do, what the type of steroid, what dose, how long you gave it for. Um, and we recognised that it, it did need some kind of trial, some kind of randomised, protocol-driven, uh, ideally placebo uh, trial. So we, we we did that in the uh, in the early 2000s. We did it with leads. Um, so we randomised our children to receive... In retrospect, what was a low dose of steroid, uh, two milligrams per kilogram, and they then went, they did that for two weeks, we then went down to one milligram uh, and then stopped it. So they had a month course of, of steroid postoperatively. And when we looked at the results, um, uh, we broke the code. Uh, it didn't change the actual uh, proportion that was clear in their jawless, But when we looked in detail at the actual biochemistry, at one month, six months, there were very clear statistically, statistically significant uh, differences in actual uh, bilirubins. So the steroid group had very much more obviously lower bilirubins. Yeah. Ultimately, they didn't change the clearance rate, but nonetheless, the steroids did appear to be doing something. So we, re- we reasoned that, okay, other people have started to use higher doses. Well, we'll double the dose. In fact, we started with five milligrams per kilogramme. Uh, per day Um, uh, and see what happens and uh, because uh, once you've done a randomized trial you believe in a something it's very then difficult to to revert to equipoise and to try and convince them that actually a placebo is probably just as good we don't know yeah Uh, uh, and parents were saying to us well we're we're sold on your story Uh, but they didn't want to get the placebo (laughs) so we reverted to an open label study and that improved our numbers acquisition considerably. Uh, and when we did a post-hoc analysis uh, of all the steroid uh, infants that we'd given versus our controls, our placebo controls and historical contemporaneous controls, uh, there were very clear differences in the clearance rate of jaundice now. Right. So the biochemical differences had then become more significant. The clearance rate of jaundice was different by a factor of about 15%. Um, and we've continued to use steroids, high dose steroids, high dose steroids, high dose steroids. So, um, and that's the same of the other two centralised units. They they leads they leads use a different steroid. We were using prednisone. Uh, they continue to use dexamethasone. Uh, Birmingham also use high dose steroids as well. So all all babies in biry bilirat, uh, in the UK would get steroids, high dose steroids. And
0: you give that for a month and then take years.
1: Yeah, so we taper it off in the month, uh, the four weeks. We then add on uh, so-called physiological two weeks of hydrocortisone, but who knows what that does. Okay,
0: and then are you using any other coloratics?
1: We so the other, uh, the only real uh, uh, additional thing that might have any use would be urso acid, Um uh, Now it's. It does not change whether you clear jaundice or not. There's no, there's no mechanistic reason why that should be the case. Uh, but it probably improves the quality of the bile flow, having established it. Mm. So our babies, they start off on a, sof- uh, a sodium cyclic acid, but it's, it's probably only useful in those that have actually cleared their jaundice. So you could, you could leave it for a month or so, seeing what actually happens, and then prescribe it then.
0: Okay. Is there any benefit for
1: phenobarb? We still give phenobarb again Again, that's, that's entirely historical. Barbitrots were used commonly by the hepatologists of the day uh, to improve the, the function of the hepatocyte. Uh, and we continue to prescribe it. We're probably the, the only center left in the Western world that still does. That.
0: <laughs> Do you want to make a comment on laparoscopic?
1: And of course, of course, why not <laughs> laparoscopic uh, It's uh, Now, the whole subject, as you know, I, I use the word tsunami uh, in a different context, but uh, there has been a metaphorical tsunami uh, since the late 1980s, early 1990s. And everyone, every operation can be done laparoscopically, no question. Um, the question is choosing the right operations. And in I think it was about 2002, the first laparoscopic cassai uh, was reported. Um, one or two case reports appeared in very strange, out-of-the-way places, uh, showing it could be done. It didn't never showed it was better than the open alternative, but it could be done. Um, and uh, particularly uh, in the East who have me, bigger numbers. Uh, they started to accumulate good experiences with it and Hong Kong particularly so the drivers uh, in Hong Kong a guy called Paul Tam uh, who in the context of laparoscopy was relatively experienced uh, started doing it and then analysed their series and found actually they had worse results with laparoscopic desires. so they actually gave it up so they'd done the what you should be doing is look back at the outcome of what you're doing, and they'd had enough numbers, and they showed uh, a difference, and they stopped doing it. Now uh, there is uh, one or two. There's not none in the West, as far as I'm aware. Uh, no big centre in the States will countenance laparoscopic size. uh There's one or two pockets in South America. The most uh, famous. Uh, uh, advocate of laparoscopic caesareus uh, is a guy called Atsuyuki Yamataka, and he works in in one of the big hospitals in Tokyo. And uh, he uh, he actually uh, knows that he can't replicate what I described as the radical dissection mm-hmm. um, uh, of uh, of biliary atresia. He, he knows that it's far too difficult to do that kind of dissection laparoscopically. So actually, philosophically, he has reverted to the kasai approach, and his reception is a relatively limited reception. Now he makes a, a good point of it. He, he, he says, "This is a, what I'm deliberating. What I'm deliberately trying to do, um, emulating the master." Um, yeah. And uh, that's. And he, um, when you look at his figures, they're not bad, you know. But there are. Uh, the Japanese figures, by and large, are better than anything in the West, anyway. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that the, uh, he he does in common with many of the Japanese uh, surgeons is actually give repeated courses of steroids. We don't give repeated courses, um, and they keep their babies in for long periods of time, and they they have a, uh, a routine of going around the uh, the baby ward. Looking at the stool of their the stool color of the post-operative babies, and if it's if it's got a hint of white, they will redo the steroids from the start okay. and I think that that may have may have uh, uh what, may be one of the reasons why uh, they have got better clearance rates than we do We, mm. we, we simply take it our uh, babies our babies get discharged at day seven uh we then see them in four to six weeks later. And we wouldn't do another course of steroids uh, for our babies. We accept it if it doesn't work.
0: So people always used to talk about the outcomes as being the rule of thirds. So 30% would drain, 30% would drain, but wouldn't clear their jaundice, and then 30% just wouldn't drain at all. What are your expected outcomes at the moment?
1: Okay, so um, again, uh, in ideal circumstances, uh, with uh, a trained uh, operator who's experienced in the condition itself, I could not accept accept anything less than fifty percent clearance of jaundice.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so, uh, with we attribute this, we have jumped up to about sixty five percent clearance of jawness. Um, as I say, I attribute that to the high dose steroids as well. And
0: that's anecdotic at six months.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. So that that would be our our baseline our starting line, yeah. and that's obviously the best prognostic indicator that if you clear your jaundice you are likely to keep your livers. Yeah. Um, they say the Japanese ser- reported series are at probably another five to ten percent on top of that.
0: Okay.
1: It is interesting though that cause, again people put about myths. Well, it's a different disease in Japan. We know it's more common. Don't know why, but we know it's more common. Um. But they say, well, perhaps they're fudging the results in some way, because they, they have a, uh, they don't do cadaveric transplantation as well. So they haven't, it's it's a very difficult decision to opt for a living donor transplant. Mm-hmm. So they accept more of their uh, Jordan's babies. They, they don't immediately resort to transplant for theirs. So that can color it a little bit. Um, but if you look at the Chinese results, they are nowhere near as good as the Japanese. Um, and presumably, again, that's the same disease. Yeah. So the Japanese are doing something that's different from the Chinese people. Uh, and the Chinese series, despite the numbers which are very good, uh, really aren't as, as... they don't have the, the best outcomes.
0: So if you, if you have a working Kasai operation, does it work forever?
1: It, it, we, we never say we cure this disease. Uh, at best it's a good palliative operation Um, and you always if you choose to biopsy these babies in the future even the anecteric ones the anecteric children adolescents you biopsy their livers 50 percent of them will have histological cirrhosis Um, and some of them will fail no question later on so in terms of if you look at the native liver survival curve uh, there is a, an early drop-off, and that's due to the ones that just don't work. Yeah. It then yeah. is a plateau-like appearance, but the plateau is always falling off uh, as various ones finally give up. They exhaust their livers. They develop the current cholangitis that's not uh, treatable by antibiotics. Uh, they have complications due to severe portal hypertension. Uh, so the, the plateau is never flat. And you you shouldn't just rest on your laurels, discharge these children and say, Ah, call me when there's a problem. They they that is only just around the corner in some of them.
0: Yeah. So what kind of things do you look out for post operatively? I mean, do you scope them on a routine basis to look for portal hypertension? Yeah. What what do you We
1: what? we we try to engineer various scoring systems post operatively specifically to look at the development of viruses. We we as you know we're very strong believers in what we call the apri which is the uh, ast to platelet ratio that was that who, was, who invented that one? <laughs> let me let me think oh andrew yes andrew grieve andrew grieve you've heard it here first uh, uh looked at our series at kings using an apri actually it's a very valuable tool does give you a bit of an insight uh, into what's happening in terms of the de- development of fibrosis for these babies um and uh, and we, as I say, we've we've developed some kind of prognostic formulation. The problem is they're all mathematical, and no one really uses them in practice. Mm-hmm. So in practice, whilst we would we would all like to do prophylactic endoscopy, never happens. Uh, so it's 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 sort of restricted. The hepatologist uh, comes back to us and says, actually, this this baby's platelet count is is getting low. I can feel the spleen. I'm suspicious, would you do an endoscopy? So we would do it in that kind of scenario, really. Okay. Are there any new, and novel, exciting
0: potentials, <laughs> treatments coming for biliary atresia? Uh,
1: sadly, on the, no. <laughs> it's the <a> short <laughs> answer. So I went to a, a, a one-day workshop in, in Bethesda, in, in Washington, D.C., where the great and the good Uh, of american hepatology assembled on one day in a room to thrash this out Um, and what is very obvious was that uh, there is no immediate solution to any of the problems albeit uh one of the guys there a guy called Saul carpen a very bright hepatologist uh reeled off a list of potential um Uh, biliary agents, antifibrotics um, and uh, said well you know maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow one of them will actually work in clinical practice. But the the damning thing is, uh, history damns us to repeat our own previous mistakes. So steroids are still controversial, they've been going for 20 years, 30 years. Anything else has has Mm. never happened. What we desperately need is an anti-fibrotic agent, something to slow down the process of fibrosis. So it wouldn't matter if you didn't clear your jaundice. You wouldn't get the the, uh, the life-threatening problems of varices. Mm. Um, but a lot of money has been poured into this kind of research, and there ain't nothing out there.
0: Hmm. All right, thanks, Mark. That's been a whirlwind tour of Biliratrizia. I think we've all seen... Lots of insights and uh, gain a few tidbits here and there, but we appreciate your time. Thank you so much and travel safely back to the UK. Thank you very much, Andrew.
1: We hope you enjoy your long flight back to Johannesburg. (laughs) (laughs) In economy uh, class, I hope. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.